Introduction I have become deeply convicted in recent days that there is another great step for the church to take in our understanding of the gospel. I do not mean anything new, though perhaps new to many of us, but greater comprehension of that which was written across the pages of Scripture thousands of years ago. Among those who look to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, there are disturbingly few who understand how the finished work of Christ actually brings about its intended effect, sanctification. Humbly, I suggest that it may not matter whether you have heard the gospel a thousand times, been in church your whole life, read volumes of Christian literature, or spent years in ministry in a good seminary. I fit all those categories, and while they provided somewhat of a foundation for my own spiritual life and ministry, there was a piece of that foundation that was always missing, a crack right down the middle that left it weak and unstable. I am confident that this has little or nothing to do with the specific tradition I come from or the particular books that I have read or have not read. For I have yet to find any stream of the Christian faith or any literature whatsoever besides the Bible that teaches these things well. I assume that they are out there, I just do not know where. Yet I believe that it should be widespread knowledge in the church. And more, I feel that nearly all of my Christian brothers and sisters— regardless of our typical variances and beliefs, can find common ground here. It is solid rock, and it is time we learn to build upon it. I tell you truly, what God has accomplished for those who trust in the name of Jesus is so immeasurably great and inconceivably marvelous that to comprehend and believe it entirely would instantaneously render any person unrecognizable, brightly shining with the glory of God. This sort of profound life transformation is not a unique grace given to a select lucky few, like the Apostle Paul, for instance, nor is it a gift given only to the holy elite who have unusual amounts of passion and time for the things of God. It is for every person who believes. There should be no question that the message of Christianity promises anything less. This being the case, we must ask what is missing in the church, perhaps even in our own lives. If our gospel is actually this powerful, how have we so failed to realize its promises? Why is it that we are not further along this path to sanctification? How does sin still have such a hold on God's people? We know in theory that we are to become like Christ and that with God all things are possible. Matthew 19:26. But in practice, this has been more difficult than it ought to be. Whether it be in our personal struggles with sin or in our ministry to others who need freedom, I believe most would say that they have seen and experienced relatively unimpressive results, besides the occasional exception, compared to what we read about in the Bible. Thus, in frustration, disappointment, or whatever it may be, we have settled for a gospel that is not quite as wonderful as the one we originally hoped to be true. We need not blame anyone, and there is certainly no fruit to bear from pointing fingers anyway. For the sake of our discussion, let us attribute the current state of things to the simple fact that we cannot know what we have not heard. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Romans 10:14. It may be especially difficult for those who have been in Christian leadership or scholarship to admit that we have missed anything so important, but I implore the church to keep pride out of the picture. What matters most is the salvation of souls, including our own. And if, in fact, what I say is true, which is still for you to determine, 
then the next great move of God will almost certainly include the dissemination of this knowledge to his church. It is that important. It is that powerful, and you will not want to miss it. There is little doubt in my mind that if the church can broadly comprehend and embrace the good news in its original apostolic form, the sheer magnitude of revival, personal and corporate, will be like nothing we have ever seen before. The gospel should always have this kind of effect, and it is an effect that does not wear off. Once we see it clearly, we do not become numb to it, but ever more aware of it. We do not grow tired of it, but are increasingly energized by it. We do not feel the need to move on to other things, but to see it more sharply. It is an entirely sufficient foundation for the day-to-day life of every Christian, a never-ending fuel for the fire that is within us. Jesus said, the truth will set you free. So tell me, Christian, does your understanding of the truth explain how the truth itself is the mechanism for change? Does your understanding of the gospel explain how belief alone, when it is present and active, makes sin impossible and righteousness inevitable? Does your knowledge of God's grace propel you daily out of your old ways and into the new, like a cannonball shot out of a cannon? Has it proven to be enough in every moment to keep you living above your feelings and your circumstances, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, always rejoicing and giving thanks for the hope that is within you? And just as importantly, does it have the same effect on those with whom you share it? If not, it is very likely that you do not have the whole picture or otherwise, you have simply forgotten it. In this case, my sincere hope is to bring a greater level of clarity and conviction into your life regarding the gospel in which you believe. For a very long time now, God has been working to restore the church to its original understanding of the gospel as it is plainly written in Scripture. Some will be inclined to think there is no need for this, as if we already have it. They may feel it is off-putting to even suggest such a thing. Who are you to think you have a deeper understanding of the gospel, they will say. And the truth is, I am no one. Just a believer doing his best to share what God has shared with me through scripture, through other Christians, and through his Holy Spirit who guides us into all truth. See John 16, 13. I do not personally claim to have the fullest picture of it. I simply intend to move the needle a little bit further, hoping that others will take it all the way. Whether or not I get everything exactly right is actually not my greatest concern. I am far from infallible and remain open to correction. Yet still, I am compelled by God to share what I believe with the same level of conviction that I believe it. It is up to you to discern for yourself what is true. One of the most common concerns I hear when I begin to speak of the gospel, as I do in this book, is, If this is true, then why have I never heard it before? Or, if this is true, then why hasn't God revealed it to his church up to this point? I do not pretend to know the answer to that question, but I do know where you can find it. Look back 500 years to the Protestant Reformation. If you can tell me how the gospel became so perverted that the selling of indulgences for the forgiveness of sins was common practice in the church for roughly 500 years, then you will have your answer. How is it that the most basic essence of the gospel— salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, was almost entirely lost to the church until then. I have no idea. It is downright baffling, but it happened. Hindsight is twenty twenty, 
but let us not be blind to the moment we are in. It is much easier to recognize the changes that needed to happen in the past than to recognize our own current lack of understanding and need for theological reformation. It would be just as foolish to think we see it all clearly today as it would be to think that the church saw things clearly then. It should not offend us one bit that God has more work to do in this regard. If we desire to bear fruit, we should always be eager for more of God's truth. A few points of clarity. 1. It is important to state that sanctification is the primary matter at hand. You might call this something different, like spiritual growth, maturity, holiness, imparted righteousness, the character of God, perfecting love, the fruit of the Spirit, overcoming sin, etc., any of which is fine, as long as we can agree, without exception, that it is an important result of the Christian life. As we follow Jesus, we should look more and more like Him. If you do not agree with this statement, you might as well stop reading now and pick up your Bible. Our conversation will be fruitless and God's grace to you highly limited until you learn of this truth and embrace it. 2. We do not need to agree at this point about the details of sanctification, what exactly it looks like, how quickly it occurs, or the degree to which it is possible in this life. All these are secondary and unnecessary squabbles compared to the issue at hand, which is how God brings about the fruit of sanctification in our lives through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Part of God's good news is that Jesus transforms us, and we want to know how to receive this gift in the fullest way possible. This is our focus, and it is a big deal. Let us not get caught straining out gnats while swallowing a camel. See Matthew 23, 24. 3. The ways that the church most commonly understands the gospel today are not so much false as they are incomplete. By themselves, they fail to capture the fullest essence of the gospel, which makes the most complete use of our faith in God's grace. Moreover, I think you will find that much of what has been missing in the church is the practical application of the gospel in our daily lives so that we may walk in truth and realize its intended effect, freedom. Once you see it, you cannot unsee it. It will shape and inform every area of your life and ministry moving forward. Tips for reading this book 1. A heads up. The first and second chapters are, admittedly, a little denser than the others. Yet I feel they were a necessary theological foundation for the rest. If you find yourself getting a little bogged down here, don't give up. One of my editors described these chapters as the slow upward climb of a roller coaster, whereas chapter 3 and onward are like the downward freefall, easy and fast. If you are like me and are especially excited about the chapters that focus on practical application, that begins in chapter 7. I tell you this so that, if you cannot wait, you may decide to skip there and then come back around to the theological foundation that I set up in the first six chapters. Both are very important. 2. I highly encourage the reader, each time that I reference the Bible, to stop and think about how it is that the Bible passage makes the point that I am trying to make. My most common reason for referencing Scripture is not to prove my point. Rather, it is to show the reader what the Scripture means, or at least what I believe it to mean. The points that I will be making are intended to serve the Scripture, 
not the other way around. The majority of this book, for that matter, is intended to help the reader better understand the gospel within the pages of their Bible. Therefore, when I am building a case for something, please do not simply take my word for it. Open your own Bible, humble yourself before God, pray that He will help you to understand, and believe that in time, He will. In this way, I hope that you will have no need to reference this book after reading it, as Scripture itself will have become your reference guide for the truth. 3. In this process, I believe that it matters a great deal which Bible translation you use. Given the specific content we will be covering in this book, the more literal the translation, the better. At the very least, it is important that your Bible tells you in a footnote when it has chosen to use a different word or wording than what is found in the original language. For this book, I have chosen the English Standard Version for all my Bible references. This is for two basic reasons. One, I am personally very familiar with it, and two, its relatively close adherence to the original language makes it plenty suitable for the task at hand. Four, it is God's desire for you to understand spiritual things, most notably His gospel. But I am utterly convinced, and Scripture says as much, that no one can obtain knowledge of the things of God through their own intellect. See 1 Corinthians 2, 10-16. The transfer of knowledge is good and necessary, or else there would be no reason for me to write this book. But knowledge will never bear lasting fruit if it does not become revelation within the heart. We do not need to be scared by the word revelation. We are not seeking to come up with anything new. Rather, we are seeking to understand personally and deeply what God has already revealed about Himself. He is happy and ready to do this for every humble believer who asks. Knowledge becomes revelation through prayer. So as you read, I implore you also to pray. The gospel is not for those who think of themselves as wise. We must believe that it can be understood by anyone with the Spirit of God. The church does not need more intellectual giants. It needs more spiritual giants. And we should never confuse the former with the latter. Let us put to death our fascination and reliance on man's intellect, and let us put on the mind of Christ, relying fully on Him to understand His Word. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of his inglorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might? Ephesians 1, 16-19